Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of the upcoming Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy, which will be available May 15th of 2020. Mark it on your calendar. You can pre-order the book right now. Go ahead and get your hands on a copy. If you're new to the Banneker Bones universe, there are two books uh, prior to Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. There's Banneker Bones and the Alligator People. And the first novel, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, is available as a paperback and audiobook narrated by the exquisite David Radke. And the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so check that out under the super secret pen name Robert Kent. I've written some uh, novels for older readers, such as All Together Now, a Zombie Story, uh, and The Book of David. The Book of David is a five-volume serial horror novel in the style of Stephen King. If you're curious about that, it's broken up into five chapters. The first chapter is available as a, a free ebook as well. So you can download The Book of David, Chapter 1 by Robert Kent. Uh, and that'll get you started on a haunted house with flying saucers and just all kinds of madness. It's a good time. Um, as always, go to middlegradeninja.com where you can read interviews with hundreds of uh, authors, literary agents, editors, publishing professionals, folks you would be interested in, as well as archives of the show uh, and a schedule for all upcoming episodes uh, and an interview, a written interview with today's guest, Barbara Shoup, as well as her uh, first appearance on the show, episode two of Middle Grade Ninja with Barbara Shoup. I couldn't be more thrilled to once again chat with Barbara Shoup. Uh, that first conversation is one of my all-time favorites, and I know that today we're going to have another exciting conversation. Uh, Barb, how are you doing this morning? I am well, and I'm glad to be here. Thanks. I am thrilled to have you back. I can't thank you enough. Um, the show is, uh, ex is exceeding my wildest expectations. Uh, every so often I'm pinching myself. I can't believe that no one stopped me yet. Uh, 61 episodes in, somebody should have at some point said, hey, that, that's enough from you, Ninja. <laughs> <Stop> that <boy>. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it wouldn't have happened uh, if you and, and Laura Martin hadn't been brave enough to uh, come on and be my first two guests uh, and get the ball rolling. So all the success that, that ha has come since has, because, has been in part because you took that initial first step and leap of faith and said, hey, you know what, I'll take a chance on this, and hopefully uh, it's, it's paid off. We'll see. <laughs> it was a pleasure. I was glad to do it. So we are going to try, and I, I went back, and I've, I've listened to that first conversation at least 10 times at this point, maybe more, um, and we're going to try and steer clear of uh, some of those topics we talked about. We, we talked about Kurt Vonnegut. We talked about the Indiana Writers' Center. We talked about your writing journey and looking for Jack Kerouac, all kinds of great stuff. Go back, esteemed audience. If you haven't listened to that episode, make sure you listen to episode two of the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Um, you can listen to it immediately after, and that can just be your day. Uh, it is uh, an exciting day of uh, conversations with Barbara Shoup. Uh, or you can go back and listen to that one, then come back and listen to this. But we're going to strive to cover new ground today because we're talking about uh, commotion in your heart. Uh, notes on writing and life by Barbara Shoup, a fantabulous new um book on, on, on notes on writing and life, uh, that uh, every writer should get a copy, particularly the ebook. The ebook is extremely well formatted. I cannot sing the praises <laughs> enough of, of how finely uh, well, formatted that ebook is. By a genius who just happens to be Rob Kent. <laughs> oh, is that right? I, I had no idea. That explains why I liked it so much. <laughs> 
So that's my ham-handed way of, of, of full disclosure. I've got a little bit of skin in the game. Um, I'm, I'm 100% uh, on board with a commotion in your heart. I would personally put this in the hands of every writer if I could. Uh, so today we're going to chat about all things writing. I've got a whole bunch of passages that I have taken directly from the book. And this is a nice thing about this show. Uh, is I'll read a book, I'll get all excited about it, and then I can literally call up the author and have a conversation about the book that I just enjoyed so much. Um, so for the uninitiated, for those who haven't uh, who haven't listened to the first episode but are about to go back and listen to episode two, remind esteemed audience uh, who you are and a little bit of your background as a writer. Sure. Um, I'm Barbara Shoup. I have written or published eight novels. Five of them are for young adults and five of them are just for anybody of any age, but primarily adults, I suppose. Um, I've also published some short stories and essays um, and another book about the creative process, which is called Novel Ideas, a book that I'm really fond of. It has about 20, 22 maybe interviews with working novelists, many of whom you would have heard of, and they talk about how they work. I'm fascinated by creative process, and that was what I wanted to do with that book. So um, all kinds of writers love that book, no matter where they are in terms of you know their own careers, because what it really does is it, it reminds us all about the fact that it's it's hard and it's supposed to be hard and it's hard for the very best writers that, that we know. So I, I sort of love that book. Um, in any case, I um, taught creative writing to high school students for a long time, 25 or 30 years. I've also taught creative writing at the um, university level from time to time. And for 10 years, I was the director of the Indiana Writers Center, which was a pleasure. However, it took a lot of time. So I recently demoted myself to writer in residence, um, a title which tells me that I can just do whatever I want. So that's what <laughs> I'm doing. And I'm really enjoying it. I'm back to teaching, which I love and I didn't have time to do before and doing community projects. So it's been a great move for me. So that's about it. <laughs> and you're right. uh, teaching in Italy every year as well, right? I do. Thank you for reminding me. I teach at this amazing um, program called uh, Art Workshop International. And it is uh, you could go for a month or you could go for two weeks. I go for two weeks. Um, it's for, you know, I, I work with people who want to work on young adult novels there. Also, people who want to work on other kinds of things, memoirs, regular novels. It's really fun. It's a small, very friendly program in the most beautiful town, one of the most beautiful towns in Italy, Assisi. And um, we gather. It's a small family-run hotel and the the views oh my gosh it's just I never want to come home it's so wonderful so um you can find information about that at my website which is www.barbershoot.com and I'm curious are you uh are, are the submissions coming in English or are you uh, also doing uh, oh, Italian I, no no my 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 Italian is limited to my favorite word, which is francobolo, which is postage stamp, which you don't have a lot of use for. And I can say, hello, goodbye. And um, I made up a word, which um, the word for uh, take a walk in Italian is passeggiato. So we were going for gelato all the time. So I added the word passeggiato to the Italian language. That is what a what a what a broad career in writing and in teaching <laughs> writing. What an absolute wealth of knowledge that we have at our, our disposal today. This is going to be uh, a tremendous episode. Uh, I'm going to do my best to, to stay out of your way and, and, and just let you talk because <laughs> I know you have a, a lot to share. Oh, I can always talk. <laughs> 
I did want to ask you about being writer in residence as opposed to the director. When you walk through the door of the IWC, I know I still sit up straight like, oh my gosh, the director's here. Um, <laughs> you can snap now. <laughs> Jeans are okay now. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what is the, in practical terms, what is the difference of that experience now? The difference is that I'm no longer responsible responsible for you know budget and fundraising and and those kinds of things that frankly I I'm not particularly good at you know I don't I don't like it my mind doesn't work that way um so I don't have to think about those things anymore and the person who's who's taken over um Rachel Sahadachni is very good at that and a gifted poet on top of it so she's a you know perfect person to take to take that job so it means that I don't have to think about those things and I can um spend my writer's center time doing the things that I that I'm good at and that I like. So I, I recently um, started teaching a, a class. It's a six session class called The Long Thing. <laughs> and it's for people who want to, you know, are writing a a long form book, whether it's a memoir. Mostly we're doing um, memoir and, and fiction. Um, a friend of mine who was working on a novel but did, was afraid to say it was a novel because it was her first one. So we always had to ask her, how's the long thing coming? So um, that's why I called it the long thing. Just in case you were afraid of the novel you were writing, you could just call it the long thing. And that's been a blast. I have really wonderful writers in it, and it's fun. We laugh, and so it's it's really cool. And then, do, you know, some other kinds of shorter um, classes and stuff in the community. Um, we're working right now on a... Uh, a program, a writing program um, for uh, in, uh, inmates of prisons who are veterans. So I'm I'm really looking forward to doing that probably in the spring. So it's it's a lot of fun. I I love doing what I'm doing now, and I love the other thing too. But it started to mess with my head. So no, you I'm don't not. let the grass grow beneath your feet. You keep busy. You bet. I like to be busy. <laughs> And Rachel, if you're uh, watching or listening, and I know that you are, just know it's countdown till I talk you into coming on here. We're gonna <laughs> we're gonna chat with you eventually as well. Well, she's doing some interesting things already, which I think is great. You know, I I love it that she's just you know grabbed a hold of it and she's moving forward. So I I think it's wonderful. Yeah, it's good. Oh, you won't hear me disagree. I'm a big fan <laughs> of the uh, Indiana Writers Center. Wonderful opportunity for for local writers. Just the idea that we have a writer center right here in uh, yeah. in Circle City yeah. uh, is, I is outstanding. And, I, uh, and so I you know feel like I have a really vested interest in it. I love the writer center. Well, we're going to talk about all things writing, but there've been a lot of uh, updates and small changes to the show since we did this originally. Since, like I say, you were brave enough to be a, a guinea pig in episode two. Um, one thing you got out of because I didn't start asking people until episode five or six. Uh, I uh, and I regret having not asked this to more people because I was thinking that's the person that had something to say when I don't ask. Barbara Shoop, have you ever seen a flying saucer, <laughs> and do you believe in them? Well, I, I, to my knowledge, I have not seen one, but how would we really know for sure? And I don't disbelieve in them. I mean, I think that we know less. How do I want to say this? There's more that we don't know than what we know. <laughs> so just because we haven't seen one doesn't mean that, that it doesn't exist. So, hey, maybe, maybe I could believe it under certain, certain cir circumstances. That's my uh, slight side hustle is uh, spreading awareness. Get involved, esteemed audience. UFO disclosure yeah, begins well, with a number of people. 
<laughs> the start at grassroots. So many, so many causes I could champion. Nope, flying saucers. That's, that's, good. that's, well, that's somebody's what I'm gonna do on. it. Good to <laughs> um, so okay, let's talk. Uh, let's talk a commotion in your heart. Okay. Um, so my first question uh, is always going to be when I see a, a new book about writing. Um, what was it that made you want to write a book specifically about writing and your writer's journey? And how did you conceive of it originally versus the final product? How close did you get to, to what you set out to do? Well, everything I do is a long story. So uh, to answer your first question, um, it was it started out in my mind and in a way it still is um, a book for my students or any person who wants to write. Because I found that as I, the more I taught, the more I under, sort of understood how things worked and how many different ways things worked. And I, you know, I wanted people to, to see that it was a, a complex, difficult, weird, wonderful, and horrible process, and that that was normal. So, you know, I think a lot of people start out and they, they find, you know, all those things to be true, but they think they must be doing it wrong, that it should be easier than it is, but it's not easy. And so, you know, that was my original thing um, to, to share what I knew about writing with others so that it would, you know, sort of shortcut some things for them, which I think is what a good teacher does. Um, in the classroom or wherever. Um, so originally the book was titled Driving at Night, which is after an E.L. Doctorow um, quote that I can't quote exactly, but but it, it's something like um, uh, you, driving without headlights, you can see just as far as the headlights, but you're going to get there eventually. You can only see so far at a time, but if you keep going, you'll get there. And I, I love that idea that, you know, you don't really know what you're doing a lot of the time, but if you keep at it, the light will come in the right place and you'll get there. Um, and originally it was, it was actually too much of a mix between how to stuff and personal stuff. And eventually I just dropped the how-to stuff because there are so many books that do that anyway, you know, define point of view and define, you know, dialogue and all those sorts of things. So there are lots of places you can go for that. And eventually it just sort of morphed into this um, series of small, small pieces about how I learned things. Um, I have a, a writing group of four people. We call ourselves the Four Geniuses, tongue-in-cheek, of course. And um, they were really helpful. Um, and I don't think I would have written it, finished it without them, because I would take these little pieces and I didn't really know exactly what they were, or how they were gonna go together. And so um, they just kept saying, yeah, we like it, keep going. So I did. And then eventually, you know, at, at some point I had enough of them that I could sort of look at them and try to categorize them. And I, I use spreadsheets a lot in in the final process of a novel or, you know, kind of along the way and also for revision. So I, you know, I would just put these things, all these different chapters um, on a spreadsheet and sort of move them around and see where they fit. And eventually I came up with what seemed like, you know, the right um combination the right themes and and then then it was a book as opposed to just a bunch of stuff so that that's kind of uh, the way it evolved over time it's always a wonderful moment when the bunch of stuff becomes a book <laughs> no it is it's it's pretty amazing and I've, I've always worked um chronologically in the past um but the last two things i've done including this 
it didn't work that way. I, I couldn't write them chronologically. And in the case of this, I wasn't even sure I was writing a book or, or what, you know, what I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted the pieces and I had some and I revised some and whatever. Um, but but um, I just allowed myself to just write in whatever order they would come and and figure that eventually I would figure it out. So it was a new new process for me, too. And I I, I liked it. It was very freeing, you know, to think that you didn't have to think of what was going to happen next. You could just write what seemed possible to you and that eventually, you know, it'd be like a puzzle and that it would all fall into place eventually, which which it did. It was cool. Now, is that something that changes a little bit when you're writing something that's a little bit more biographical as opposed to when you're writing fiction, it's driving at night, you don't know exactly what's going to happen, whereas a biography, presumably, you know at least somehow it's going to happen. It happened, and I, I, I knew that it was out there, and I, I yes, that's true. But the last um, novel that I finished, which is called About Grace, I haven't found a home for it yet, but um, it came that way, too. It's um, it's about a, a 17-year-old girl who... Um, is ends up in the juvenile in a juvenile correctional center because she's she's you know committed some house robberies with her with her husband with not her husband but her boyfriend <laughs> her boyfriend um and and he's a rich kid and she's a you know a middle class well to do kid and those kids don't usually end up in a place like that you know um so she ends up there and while she's there she sort of has to deal with memories of you know things that happened to her when, when she was a child that were not good and and I it came in little pieces, just, just like this did. And I, I worked on it for a long time and then I put it away and then I'd get it back out again. And eventually those pieces made a story, you know, I I got an arc with them and boy, that was an interesting process too. And again, that writer's um, group was amazing. I mean, I I might've quit any number of times because it was so confusing and I'll just stop for a second and take the opportunity to say that a writer's group is wonderful. You know, if you can find the right people, they have to be people who understand what you're trying to do and have enough technical skill and knowledge of craft um, to be able to, you know, help you and give you good advice and see what's wrong with it. But, but I didn't have a writer's group ever. So it's only in the past four or five years that I've been doing that. And I, really advise it. Um, one of the great things about taking classes at the Writers' Center or anywhere, going to writers' conferences, is that you can find those people. You know, you might find one person in a class that seems like sort of on your same wavelength, and you can kind of go off and then maybe find a third person. I think, you know, four or five is, is probably ideal. If it gets too big, not so great, at least for me. But anyway, I, that was just a little segue, and I, I do think it's it's really important to um, have a little community of writers who are your own people and you, you guys all know what you're doing and help each other. Very cool. So uh, let me ask you, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for information on how to, uh, how to run a better writer's group. Uh, not that the young adult cannibals as esteemed audience knows is doing great, but for uh, other people out there that are, that are uh, running their uh, writer's groups, what, what steps do you take to make sure that, when you're meeting, that's going to be a productive meeting um, and that everybody's going to come to it and do the work uh, and, and, and be the geniuses that you're expecting. Yes, them to really be. are. Well, you know, I think part of that is choosing the right people who really want to work. And it's not a social occasion for them, but it is an opportunity to, to work together. Um, you know, what we do is we usually talk for 20 minutes and catch up with each other. And then we go, you know, we go to the manuscripts and that's what we do for the rest of the time. And we'll be there depending on if everybody has something anywhere from nine. 90 minutes to sometimes a little more than two hours. Um, I, I think, 
you know, you have to really be committed to that and you have to find other people who are because not everybody is and not everybody wants the same kind of feedback either. You know, some people are looking for um, just for you to confirm their existence as a writer, which is fine. Um, other people only want you to, to say the things that you like and they get upset and they don't know how to deal with, you know, anything that that you might think doesn't work. So, and then other people are, you know, sometimes people are mean, sometimes people are wishy-washy. And, and so, you, you know, sometimes you have to go through some people before you find the right, right mix of people. And I always think um, that critique is not about whether you like something or don't like something. It's about whether something works or doesn't work. And you should talk to each other about writing in those terms and then be able to say why, you know, why you think it doesn't work and why you think it does work. Because sometimes people are insecure and they might not think that something works, but then the writer's group will say, well, yeah, actually that works really well. And, you know, writer's group can, can work for you that way too. But it's all about, for me anyway, um, questions and observations that uh, you want people to ask you questions. Once <laughs> I had a, in, well, actually it was in Looking for Jack Kerouac, the character of Duke, who I love. Um, what, my agent, at some point, I you sent her a draft and it wasn't finished yet. And she asked me about the character Duke. She said, well, did you want him to be such a jerk? And I said, well, he acts like a jerk, but that's not all he is. And she said, that's not there yet. And that was so helpful to me because then I, I realized I had to go back through the book and find places where I could complicate him. You know, I could have him do something um, that sort of balanced out some of the other stuff that he did that that wasn't so great. And, and it was kind of fun. You know, I mean, it's a great gift when somebody gives you a piece of information like that about your own work. And, you, you know, you have to learn to think about it that way. Um, we can't read our own writing very well because when we come to it, we can't help but bring what we wanted it to be and maybe what was in an earlier draft or whatever. Um, and we know what we meant. So we read, you know, when we read, it makes sense to us. But to another reader, it may not make sense. So we have to figure out that gap, you know, between what we think is there and what's actually there. And that's what critique is for. Um, and it, it, the greatest thing you can do as a writer is, is learn, you know, just to get rid of your ego and, and regard that as, like I said, a gift, because it really shortcuts things for you. I love that process. Uh, so here's a question I wanted to ask, and it's a little bit of a catch your own throat question. Uh, just like I'm always, I'm forever recommending podcasts that people could be listening to instead of this one. Very, very, very <laughs> wise thing for me to do. Um, what are some guidebooks that you've read about writing that have influenced you and that maybe not necessarily that you aspired to emulate, but maybe had some lessons that you wanted to take and, and, and use in writing your own? Well, I've always loved Bird by Bird. I think that's a really interesting book because it's so practical and it it talks, I think it's a little bit similar to mine in the sense that it it shares what she knows by way of stories rather than, you know, here's how you do it. And I just, you know, I, I, I love those kinds of books. I like Stephen King's book on writing. Um, I loved Writing Down the Bones, which I, I found very freeing. I, I haven't read that for a long time, but for people who have difficulty 
because they're perfectionists, you know, that they can't write because they think everything has to come out perfectly. That's a wonderful book to read, Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg, because she really helps you let go of that idea. And there are lots of, you know, little interesting little prompts and things. Um, I read a book years ago that I talk about in um, A Commotion in Your Heart, which is is about left brain theory. It's, it's um, what is it called? I can't remember it now. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, Gabrielle, Writing on the, writing on the, no, I'm sorry, I can't remember it. But anyway, um, Aspects of a Novel by um, um, E.M. Forster, John Gardner's On Being a Novelist, which I love. And then I've, I've got a little list here, so I'll, I'll just go to this for a second and say uh, Linda Berry. If you've never read Linda Berry on Creative Process, she's amazing. I just love her. Um, and those are probably the, the main ones for me. I, I like personal books about writing where people talk about how how they became writers why when they knew they wanted to write um and their process of of not only becoming writers but the process by which they work as writers that is absolutely fascinating to me i love that so those are my those are my go-to's it's one of those uh, things I'm trying to overcome for myself. Uh, and, and when I'm going to write a new project, my, my, my first one of my first questions to myself was, why should this exist? So, like, if I'm writing yeah. a zombie book, um, there are plenty of zombie stories already. They're, they're right. plentifully available. What have I got to say that's new about zombies? I'm never going to do a scary clown, as far as I'm concerned. Stephen <laughs> King Thank has God. done the definitive scary clown. The, the market's sold out. There's there's no more room for a Rob Cat scary clown. No, no. But I might do vampires. I, I could find a non sale slot version of vampires so when you're looking at a at a field that's uh, not stuffed there we always need more writing guides um because sometimes it's it's not just that the information it may be information you've heard before but it's being said in a way you haven't heard it that right. finally clicks so when you're uh when you're looking at 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 at, 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 a, at a field like that that's uh, got so many uh, excellent options already available uh, aside from the hubris that every author has to have to write anything <laughs> <Doing it. Yeah. laughs> what uh, what is it that you wanted to say that you felt maybe hadn't been said or that only you could say at this time about writing i think there are some things in a commotion in your heart that are that i haven't seen before and now i'm gonna i think i well here here's what it is i guess over a long career of teaching writing, I have come to a lot of what I think of just shortcut phrases to to say something that people seem to remember. Um, for example, I, in the book, I talked about trying to trying to make a kid understand why a sentence, you know, sort of what a clear sentence is and why his sentence wasn't clear. And 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 what I was trying to say to him was the sentence could say, could mean more than one thing and that you don't want that. You want your sentence to mean one thing. And I tried this and I tried that. I tried something else. And eventually I said to him, it's like, it's like fractions in math, you know, the least common denominator in fractions in the least common denom denominator. There's no place else you can go in a clear sentence. There's no other way to see it. And he just went, oh, and I went, oh, because I, you know, in the process of trying to explain to him, that came to me. And so, you know, I ended up having a whole bunch of those kinds of things um, that were my own little way of talking about writing. And another one of them was, I was sort of talking about it a minute ago, um, the idea that, um, 
you know, that there's a, this gap between what what you want to do as a writer in a book and what you're actually able to do and how, how it's all about trying to make that gap smaller and smaller and smaller. It's never going to be exactly the same because words are a second language to your heart. You know, all the things that you know and see um, and think they're not words. And so you literally have to translate them. And that, you know, to me that I've never heard anybody else say that it quite in the way that I say it. And it's something that, you know, kind of, turns the light bulb on for, for a lot of people and helps them see why it's so hard and also why feedback from somebody else is so important because that gap, you can't always see it, but somebody else can. So if that makes sense, I, I think that's what's in that book um, that, that I haven't, haven't seen in other places. And I, you know, sometimes I, I think too, that a lot of these books have been written, um, by people who are pretty successful, who have been pretty successful as writers in terms of being able to either earn a living or being recognized. And that never happened to me. You know, I've written a lot of books. I've published a fair number of books, but I've never gotten the exposure and certainly couldn't make a living at it. Um, And so, you know, I'm writing from that point of view of that doesn't always happen to you. And that's something you need to think about and and decide how important writing is to you. Would you do it anyway? Obviously, I am, you know. Um, so that's an interesting and difficult question. I think that that book addresses that I, I haven't seen other books, books address. Well, the good news is now you're on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast for the and second time. So change. fame is on the way. This is this is the moment. I'm going to, you know, really, yeah, can't wait. <laughs> I like to imagine that uh, every Saturday when a new episode hits, all of New York publishing grinds to a halt. Like, oh, until we listen to this new episode, we... <laughs> everything's on hold. Well, that's, I did want to, I've got a couple of, of, of questions for you because I want to talk a little bit more about fame. You've got a whole section in the back of the book. Um, but before we get to that, you said something else. And there's this beautiful passage from the book um, that I'm, I'm going to read part of your own book to you, if you'll forgive oh, me. Nothing we observe, feel, or know about our own human experience or the experience of others comes to us by way of words. And yet words are all we have to make a story in which living, breathing characters move through worlds that seem as real to readers as their own backyard. No writer has ever had or will ever have all the words needed to recreate the world that was alive in their mind. And I read that and a little light bulb went off. Yes, that is the problem. How do we come to terms with that? It is the problem. You can't, you know, you just have to to accept it. To me, on, on, on some level, to me, it was a relief to know that because it meant that I wasn't doing it wrong. You know, I, I thought other people could do that, but I couldn't, you know, that I didn't have the words. I My vocabulary wasn't good enough. Um, but, but when I realized that that wasn't the case, I thought, okay, um, that doesn't mean I can't be a writer and it doesn't mean that I can't write good stuff. It just means that what I write will never quite match up to what I hoped it was. And I've interviewed lots and lots of writers over the years, probably 50 or more. And almost every person I've ever interviewed feels the same way, you know. Um, and to me, that's a reassurance, too, that you think, you know, a, a famous, really wonderful writer surely wouldn't feel that way. But in fact, they do. Um, so, so what I recognized was that it is... It's just an intrinsic part of that process. And 
so it's one of the things, you know, it's one of the, you know, things to me that separates those who think they want to be writers from those who really do want to be writers, because the ones who really want to be writers, they just go with it, you know, and to them, that's good news, like it was for me, because they think, oh, you know, I can learn to do all these other things, I can be a writer, and I don't have to feel, you mean, you're always going to feel bad that it doesn't match up, but you can recognize that that's normal. Um, so, so yeah, um, that was a huge, huge thing for me and still is, I have to remind myself of it. The only counter to that I might offer that I found in my, in my own experience, uh, is that although it's true that, uh, what is it? The, the, the artist, uh, from the first brushstroke knows that they've already ruined their painting, uh, because it's, it's not going to be what they yeah. had in their mind. Well, there's a great Iris Murdoch quote. She said, Every book is the wreck of a perfect idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I love that. I love that. There's something true to it. On the other hand, uh, I have a, a few books in the back of my mind that one day, God, God willing, and I'm alive. If there's enough time, I'll get to that. I've just got, you know, Banneker Bones 3 is the, is the priority for me. And once that's done, if there's still time, I'll, I'll do some others. Um, on the other hand, the world of... I'll, I'll stick with Banneker Bones. The world of Banneker Bones, as it existed in my mind, was perfect and unblemished. On but until it, it existed, until it was brought forward on the page, where I could see it, the full story didn't. I I couldn't share it with others, and it didn't. There are things that exist within that story that I found only through the process of bringing it to the world that wouldn't exist in the perfect yep. draft in my yep. mind. I love that part. You're absolutely right because you think you have this great idea. And and then it takes a turn on you and it, it tells you something better. You know, you, you end up with something you never would have thought of, um, but but actually is better. And I, I love the way that sometimes happens in revision. I've been really fascinated lately by this particular kind of revision where um, you recognize that the pace is off. You know, the pace just doesn't seem right. It's too fast or it's too slow or but particularly like where it's too fast and you think I've got to have something between this and this. Um, and you have no idea, you know, what, what it can be because, well, you just don't. And then you start saying, well, what if this, what if that, what if something else? And, and something occurs to you and you, you know, you write that little thing, the wall opens a little bit, you know, and you open op and the door opens for you for this new piece. And then you get it in there and you think, how could I have ever thought of this novel without it? I mean, I've had that happen to me so often, sometimes in one case, um, in an American tune, um, where something got resolved that I didn't know how I was going to resolve or if I could resolve. And, and in that thing that I wrote just for pace, just because there needed to be something between this and that, it was absolutely, the book would have been, it wouldn't have worked as well without it. So you have to stay open to, you know, kind of let the book talk back to you in various parts of the, the process and to tell you, what it is and what it might, it's kind of in a weird way, like raising children, you know, you get this kid and you have to learn who he is or she is before you can raise them. And it, you know, it's kind of like one of those catch 22s because how can you know that you can't really, but you have to really pay attention as you go along um, and see, you know, what does that kid like? What does he choose? And then, you know, to help him in the direction that, he needs to go. That's your job as a parent. You know, it's not to make a ballerina or whatever. It's to look at the kid. And if the kid loves ballet, yeah, guide, guide that way. But if not, 
figure out what it is instead. So it's it's very to me much like a book. Um, can't revise your kids, unfortunately, but <laughs> you can watch your book. <laughs> the uh, other nice thing about uh, creating, and this is the only uh, one of the only times, other than when I talk about flying saucers, when I start sounding a little bit woo woo, uh, and I'm very conscious of that. But there is magic in writing when something clicks, Absolutely. and it's like, yes. oh, my subconscious or my muse, whatever it was, knew yeah. something that was leading me to this moment, and now I can see it all clearly. And you yeah. can't have that experience if it's just in your head. It's got to be on the page. It's got to uh, have. It's, yeah, it's alive. It really is. And it, you're like, who wrote that? I didn't, I didn't know that. And I, I think those are the great moments of writing when you write something you didn't know you knew and a book takes a turn that you never, never would have thought of. Um, and it's absolutely right. So there's something happening under the surface um, as those characters sort of evolve and shape and they're, they're like real people, you know, you, you get a first glimpse of them and then you put them in a scene and, and you see something else about them and then somebody else makes an up. It's just like meeting people in real life. They are revealed to you over time. Um, and if you're doing it right, they'll surprise you sometimes. Uh, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, although I've had the other experience where there, there's at least a couple of uh, long manuscripts on this shelf right over here that probably would have been better just in my head. They were perfect then. Why did I, <laughs> why did I write that? Sometimes, fortunately not too often or hopefully not too often anyway. Let's uh, back up a little bit, because I know that you uh, wanted to be a, a writer since I think you said age seven in the book. Uh, it was the only thing you wanted to be. And the goal was you wanted to be rich and you live forever bet. through your books, <laughs> um, which obviously is in the process of happening. We're, we're not ruling anything out. Right. Uh, but is that at what point did that uh, when that didn't instantly materialize, because, you know, the podcast wasn't around then to, uh, right. <laughs> to, 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 to raise you up. Um, <laughs> when that didn't initially um, materialize and this became a lot of work as well as a lot of fun, what kept you writing and what keeps you writing now? It, I stopped writing for, well, okay, I'll, I'll just tell you my weird little slave girl story if, if that sort of started. it. I wrote a novel when I was 11. And it was called Slave Girl. And this was in the 50s, in, you know, with all of the things that were going on, integration and all this stuff on television that was very upsetting to me. And my little kid brain morphed that into a story that was called Slave Girl. And it was about a little girl escaping by Underground Railroad from the you know, south to the north, a black girl. And um, only the problem was I thought it was a subway. And so I had her boarding the subway, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, dining cars, sleeping cars, the whole nine yards, and then coming up in New York City free at last. And so I, you know, I wrote it all down and I, I made little pictures and I, I had a cover and um, I sent it off to a publisher in New York that I'd found in a library book, the address in the library book. And of course, it was rejected because, well, I mean, because just because, but um, shortly after we got to the unit um, in social studies and I found out that the Underground Railroad was not a subway. And I was so embarrassed that I, this is the God's honest truth. I was so embarrassed that I didn't write for 20 years. Um, and, and then when I was teaching high school and I was in my mid 20s, a kid said to me, um, how, was there any, ever anything else you wanted to be? And, and I, you know, I always had this idea that you had to say the truth. If you were a teacher, you can, you know, I don't like adults who don't tell the truth to kids. So I said, well, you know, I, I used to want to be a writer and I, and, and then he said, well, why aren't you? And of course 
I could only say, you know, because I'm too scared. <laughs> and then I knew I had to try, you know, because if I was asking kids to do what I was asking them to do, which is to, you know, go after their dreams, didn't I have to do that too? So that was what really got me going. Um, and and by then, I, I, I you know, I, I think I still thought that, that I would publish and that I, you know, would eventually have a, you know, a career and I would make money from writing and all that. And I was lucky. I published my first novel pretty quickly um, with a New York publisher. It got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It got a lot of good reviews, but it didn't sell very well. And, you know, pretty soon it was off the shelves. And so that was, you know, my first clue about the way things really were. And, you know, to, to shorten the story a bit, um, I wrote, worked on a second novel for a really long time with this, this editor. And it, it just didn't, it just didn't work. And, you know, she finally had to let it go. And I understood that, um, it eventually became a young adult novel, which was stranded in harmony. Um, uh, but, but in any case, I went for, for 12 years between my first and second novel, which was really difficult. And, you know, I, I came to the point where I thought, I don't know which is worse, whether, you know, when people stop asking you, um, when is your next novel coming out or when they stop asking you, you know, that you don't, people would say for a long time, well, when's that next one coming out? And yeah, it was embarrassing because I didn't know. And then people stopped and they, you know, I guess they just assumed I wasn't going to do it again. And so it was hard. And so I was teaching during that time um, at Broad Ripple High School in Indianapolis, which was my greatest work ever. I loved that job and I loved those kids and they were what I had, you know, and I, told them that process was what mattered and that that you know you had to be patient and and that it wasn't about anything other than that and so you know again it was the teenager kind of thing that that made me keep going because I felt like if I you know if I was demanding that of them I had to demand it of myself and so then eventually I published my second novel which was um Wish You Were Here and again, I mean, it got great reviews. It, it, it was on the best books for young adults. So was Stranded in Harmony a couple of years later. But no, you know, it sort of didn't go anywhere. And I, I have had the worst luck in publishing. I really have. For some reason, those two books never went into paperback. And they should have based on, you know, just the fact that they were award books and whatever. That For some reason, they didn't go into paperback. It was Hyperion. They were new at that time. And they just you know, were, they couldn't figure out who they wanted to be. So, so don't, you know, so that was really weird. But since then, you know, I've, I've published fairly regularly, maybe three, four years. It takes me a long time. Um, but no, you know, no book has ever hit. Every book I've ever done has gotten, you know, good reviews wherever. And some of the YAs have received various awards, but it just has never panned out, you know, um, for whatever reason. I think a lot of it is, frankly, a crapshoot. You don't, you don't know um, why, why things happen. Um, sometimes they happen because of connections, and I don't really have a lot of those, so maybe it's partly that. Um, and, you know, maybe it's my karma. You know, maybe it's just that this is what I'm meant to deal with, that I have, that this is my test. You know, am I going to keep doing this no matter what? And the answer is yes, that whatever you know, whatever happens, I'm going to do it because I honestly, I feel worse when I don't write than when I do write. So, you know, whatever happens to what happens afterwards, it'll just, you know, it's just what it is. So I'm now hoping for posthumous fame and wealth. 
could happen. Well, that's uh, that 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 uh, that's that's yeah. a given. That's a story I tell myself is the the moment I'm dead, uh, my books will go on to become the greatest, most successful things that have ever been. There will be thousands yeah, I, of movies, and if for some reason that's not true, I won't know about it. It's fine. You won't know. So that's <laughs> let's just plan on that. <laughs> I know that obviously you're the only writer that has ever encountered uh, difficulty in publishing. Um, <laughs> but for, for those authors who are listening who might currently be encountering some sort of difficulty along the way, what kept you going through that? How did you deal with that frustration to, to put that aside and still find joy in, in writing despite all the pain it was also simultaneously bringing you? Well, I, I do love to write. I mean, I feel better when I write. My life is better when I write. Um, I have a tendency towards depression just as a human being, and I get that less when I'm writing. It's, I mean, it's amazing to me if I haven't written for a while and I'm, I'm really down and I just, you know, just even if I start writing in my journal, I feel better. So I, you know, over the years, I've learned that about myself. And so I, you know, I make myself do it. I just, I do it. Um, and I think people say, oh, I can't write if I'm not inspired. Yeah, you can. It'll take you longer. Because, you know, make the words come out a little bit at a time. But you won't be able to tell the difference in the end between the stuff that came when you felt inspired and the stuff that you had to really work over. They'll, they'll be the same. Um, and, and so fine, just do it. You know, and people say I don't have time. But yeah, you do, with the exception possibly of people with brand new babies or something. But, but generally, you know, turn off your television. I, I just always say choose writing. When you have three things that you could do, um, and writing's one of them, choose writing. And that may mean that you give up other things that you enjoy. You might do that instead of watching a movie or going shopping or what, you know, whatever things you like, but, but it's a matter of choice. It really is. It, it comes down to that. Um, I, I saw this in a, a, some dumb magazine years ago, but it said, uh, discipline is remembering what you want. And I think that's a great way of thinking of, of discipline, because usually discipline is something people tell us we should do. They say, you need to have more discipline, at, at which point you immediately don't want it because someone told you to have it. But if you if you think discipline is remembering what you want, it's a whole other way of, you know, the whole other way of thinking about it. Um, so so there you go. And, you know, the other thing with the, the novels, too, is that you know, this is kind of the good news and the bad news, but they take a long time. So, you you know, it's not like you're trying, you know, it's not like you're facing the publication question every day, you know, maybe like a short story writer does or something like that. It's, it's, it's periodic misery <laughs> as opposed to daily misery. So it's, I guess that's good. <laughs> Even on the days when you feel ridiculously inspired and like, this is the greatest writing day ever. And you, you know, you write some tremendous word count. You're still going to have to revise that. You've still created work for yeah. future you. Yeah. And that's why the stuff that's hard and the stuff that's easy ends up sounding the same because you have to revise it all. And when you revise, you revise with the same process. So it all comes out, you know, kind of so that it's seamless. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why revision is so important. You want that seamlessness in your, in your work. Something I try and hammer on maybe uh, to, uh, to, to too hard a degree. I'm sure esteemed audience, faithful esteemed audience uh, members have heard me say this uh, <laughs> before. Uh, but something I open my fiction workshops with is uh, if you come here and you paid money to hear me talk about writing, that's going to happen. Uh, but during the day, if at some point I can convince you to stop writing, if you can see yourself being happier doing something else with your time, then go do that thing. Be free. I consider that to be I a agree. worthy use of your time and money. You don't have to worry about this writing thing anymore. If you're not going to stop, 
then do it right. Get to it. I think you're absolutely right. You know, when I was teaching, sometimes parents would say, oh, you know, I hope you'll encourage my son or daughter to to be a writer. They're so talented. And I would think sometimes they were not as talented as their parents thought. Sometimes they were. But but in any <laughs> case, you know, what I what I always said to them was, if, you know, if your son or daughter really wants to be a writer and does the work to be a writer, I will be with them forever. Um, but they might not want that. And and you need to think about that, too. And I would, I would say sort of say the same thing you say to, to people, to the, the kids that I taught. If you don't really want to do it, there are lots of other things that you can do that probably will will bring you, well, not necessarily more satisfaction, but will be more easy to be satisfying. Like, you know, there's no ladder in this. In, 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 in other kinds of careers, you start at a certain place and depending on how hard you work and how smart you are, and sometimes who you know, but not always, you know, you can predict that you will get to a certain level that you can rise. And it's all about rising, corporate world, world legal world, whatever. Um, but in the world of the arts, it's not like that, that there is no ladder. And nobody knows who's who's going to get to the top. I mean, it could be James Patterson, one of the worst writers in in ever in the world. Um, and who knows Ooh, why? Bold words, bold words. I'm from sorry, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely true. He is not a good writer. His stuff does not hang together. Yet he is, you know, he's as rich as God. So who knows? You know, and, and you can't get angry about that. You just have to accept it. You just you cannot dwell on it. If, if you do, it'll make you crazy and depressed and, and that doesn't help. <laughs> so you write for yourself, you know, you're not, I don't write for an audience. I write for myself. Um, I don't know how to write for an audience. I write the things that seem possible to me and are in some way um, related to something that troubles me in my personal life or the world in, in general, mostly my personal life. And then, you know, I find a way to look at it sideways through um, a story, which is generally not um, the, not a story about exactly what I'm troubled with, but, you know, somehow it, it, it all comes into play. Um, so that's, that's me. And you have to decide what kind of writer you want to be. Um, if you, you know, want to make a living at writing, there are ways that you that you can do it. Um, one of my daughters is is a terrific writer, and she makes a living as a freelance writer, nonfiction stuff. And you know, she really loves it. She writes good books, and um, she's not beating her head on the wall like I am. But um, that's not the kind of book I want to write, or that I even feel like I can write. You know, um, I write what I can, <laughs> and it seems like the only thing that I can do. I am a James Patterson apologist. We won't go into that uh, today, uh, but uh, I, I think he absolutely serves a vital function. Oh, uh, I've got a couple of that. books of his that I'll pick a bone with, but that's that's another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, people can can do what they want, but you know, most people who are writers and know about writing will look at his books and they will. If you talk about them in terms of craft, that's a different thing. But if you enjoy them cool. I think there should be every kind of book in the world. And you know, they're great escape fiction for some people. People like it. But for me as a writer, if I if I open a book up a book like that, and not only his, it's like, you know, it's like fingernails on a, a chalkboard. Ah! Because it, it just, you know, it's not doing what I think it ought to do. So we'll just leave him behind. 
fair enough. <laughs> My wife has this uh, great term that I've taken to using. It's a literary Twinkie. And for me, that's most James Patterson novels. Yeah, uh, is, yeah. Goodbye, brain. I won't need you for I this. Let's have some definitely, fun. Definitely uh, <laughs> a place for those books. <laughs> uh, if I'm looking for passages that I'm going to highlight and say, this, this is the finest sentence that I've ever read. I'm probably not going to find it there. Probably not. <laughs> but I will maybe find yeah. a good time. Let's, uh, time is it's just fly, it always does. Uh, time is flying by on us, and I've got some specific things I really okay. want to drill down from the book. But you've mentioned depression a couple of times, so and you're very um, open uh, about your struggles with depression in in this book, um, and I know that that's fairly common among writers. Um, so why do you think that is, and what strategies do you recommend for writers who may be dealing with depression? Um, well, I think part of it is just physiological. I think, you know, it, it's just who you are. And I, I take medication and that helps a lot. So, you know, it's something that is out of whack with your body. Um, I think in, in most cases, I also think that, um, this is my own personal theory, that writers and artists, people who are creative people, um, they don't, they don't, fit in the world very well, you know, that they are, they constantly find themselves outside of things and they don't get things or, you know, like Kurt Vonnegut said once, um, writers are people who keep asking the same sophomoric questions that most people quit, quit asking when they're, you know, in high school. And, and, you know, you're just saying, why, 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 what if, what if, what if? And, and so I think, you know, you're always at odds in a way with, I don't want to say normal people, but but people who don't have the kind of stuff going on in our minds. Like, you know, we're living <laughs> we're living different, different. Um, we're in different worlds at one time. You know, we're in the real world. We're in the world of of books. And, and you know, the older I get, the more books I have going. So I'm, you know, I'm thinking of all these different worlds. And so, you know, it's like we're here, but we're not here. And there's that that sense of detachment. Many writers will say, you know, they have the feeling that they're standing outside, that they're watching, that they're observing, and that, you know, we often notice things that other people don't notice that are, you know, sad or unsettling. And and so I think that, you know, that that contributes to a, a kind of darkness that that is within us. Um, it's the thing that I believe probably sends a lot of people to alcohol and drugs to escape it. For me, writing is an escape. I mean, I, I feel like when I'm writing, I'm not in the world. I'm in this other place that I understand because it's mine. Um, and I can't always make it do what I want, but I know it's mine. Um, and when I'm there, I'm not thinking about politics. I'm not thinking about, you know, whatever problems might be in my family or among my friends or whatever. I'm just in this place and it is pure escape. You know, hours will go by and I don't know it. Um, you know, I look up and it's five hours and I'm starving. And, and so for me, depression and process go together that that I know I have learned over the years that it it not only alleviates depression if I'm depressed but it also keeps it from coming or if it comes it's it's not as much 
and I know that I can work through it. And the other thing that's been very helpful to me too is, you know, that once I accepted that 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 was part of who I was, then I began to understand that it was cycles. Because when you're in the middle of a bad depression, I was thinking of it as the dark treadmill that, you know, that's all there is. And you, you, you can't, nothing's funny, nothing, you know, you just, it's just awful. And you think it will never change. You can't believe that it will change. But as time goes by, you begin you know, when you get in the throes of it, you remember, yeah, it's going to go away. You know, it's going to go away. Um, and you can make it go away faster by doing something, by moving. Because um, you tend, you know, when you're depressed, you just want to give it up and, and sleep. You're tired all the time. And you have to force yourself to get up and get out and do what you need to do. So, I mean, that's what I always advise to people. And I also say, why not try medication? It really works for a lot of people. And if, you know, if you had a blood pressure issue and you knew that if you didn't take that, you know, medicine, you were going to blow up. Well, why would you not take it for something else, too? You know, people are are not not like they used to be, but people resist it. You know, they're ashamed of it. They think it's some sort of a flaw that you that you need that. But it's not. It's just you know, it's part of who you are. And, you know, you will be a better writer if if you can keep it under some kind of control. It's, um, it's not fun, <laughs> not happy, but there it is. It is very strange. The, the way we look at that, there's nothing else like that. Like, you know, I would never think, Oh, I've cut my finger. If only I were a stronger person, I wouldn't need a bandaid right <laughs> exactly. now. <laughs> you know, you would never think that. And when you, you know, you look at it like that, it seems so absurd not to give it a try um, and just see, see what it does. And, and if it helps you don't feel bad feel feel happy <laughs> because it, it makes you more able to get your work done and be the person that you want to be with your, you know, family and friends and whatever. So yeah, it's, it's part of the deal for a lot of people. I know a lot of writers who, who have, um, who suffer from depression from time to time. Yeah, that's uh, something else that I, I put in the workshop. I always recommend that one, see a professional who's not a podcaster who knows something about this, uh, but two, get yeah. uh, maybe invest in a sad light. Uh, oh, especially yeah. Especially if you're in January in Indiana, get your sad light. Point it at you while you're at your desk. Well, I think um, get some vitamin D. Yep, yep, and therapy. The great what I discovered about therapy that I love so much is if you can cross the line in therapy from feeling like oh, there's something so wrong with me. I need therapy, right? Oh, that's just awful. To thinking, God, it is so interesting how I got to be the person I am, you know, to, to start to match up these things about your childhood um, that set you up to believe certain things or to do certain things. And when you get curious about yourself, it, it really helps um, your depression too. And it helps you see like, you know, when, when things are bad, you think, I always do that. Why do I do that? And then you go back and you think, I know why I do that because my mother did this or that, you know, and it's not a question of blaming. It's just a question of recognizing, um, you know, why you do what you do. And you, and then you become fascinated by it rather than afraid of it um, or trying to suppress it or deny it. And that, you know, that was what what it did for me, uh, therapy did for me. I think it's, I think it's really fascinating. I would do it for entertainment if I could afford it. I really would. <laughs> How weird is that? <laughs> 
Well, that's one nice thing about uh, writing horror stories uh, is that I can put all that darkness that's inside me that would eat me alive on the page. So you deal with it, esteemed reader. I'm done with it. That's right. That's, well, and that's Stephen King talks about that, you know, the closet when he was a child. And and I, I do think that that writing serves that purpose, that the things that haunt you and trouble you, when you bring them up and you use them um, in a story, they're not in you to the degree that they were before. They can't hurt you like they hurt you. Like, you know, when you come smack up against something, somehow it's not as scary as you thought it was. And and you can sort of put that thing away. So I think writing is a kind of therapy. Um, I think it's, I, I mean, research shows that it's, that it's, it's a healing process um, for a lot of people. It's, it's absolutely fascinating what it, you know, what it does when you, you bring that stuff up and then you put it, put it on the page. It's not gone, but it's different. It feels different. We've done, you know, interesting projects at the Writers' Center. We um, did a project with, memoir project with homeless women, with um, uh, women who were victims of of domestic abuse. Um, We did a a project, actually, my book that I spoke of earlier about Grace grew out of this project that we did with girls um, that were incarcerated, you know, for various kinds of things in, in a correctional facility. Um, and, you know, and they write about their lives and they have these amazing insights and they cry, which is good. Um, and they, you know, they learn to trust one another when they're, you know, they're in this little community of writers. And and I think writing is is very good at help helping to bring insight um, to things that you, you're not going to get it just thinking it something happens in your brain. It's kind of amazing. I love that. Well, that's another nice anecdote to the question of uh, what if you write your whole life and you don't become uh, James Patterson famous and rich? Um, (laughs) Is the act itself has meaning because it improves my life. I'm better for having written my novels, even if no one else is. That's exactly right. And, you know, and every now and then I'll I'll talk to someone or get an email from someone and and they've read something and it, you know, I mean, it's really had a profound effect on them for some reason. And that's very satisfying. You know, it really is. Uh, it makes me feel good. It's sort of in a, in a weird way, like teaching by book or something, because I love teaching so much. And I think books teach us. I think that reading fiction makes us better. I think that, you know, the thing that you get from reading good fiction is the, you know, the introduction to somebody else's head other than your own. And and so when you're reading fiction and if you read a lot of fiction, you begin to realize that there are so many ways of of looking at things that, you know, a character you really like may have a completely different take on something that that you've never thought about before. And so, you know, and then you also realize that. You know, none of us, none of us puts forth the person in the world that we hope that we are inside of ourselves. You know, the, our I- ideal self is very hard to, to present to the world. It's, it's dangerous. It's whatever. And so we generally don't do it. Um, and so we're dealing with people who are not presenting or able to present their best self. So, so what happens is if you don't understand that all kinds of things are happening inside somebody's head, then you just take that at face value. And it never occurs to you to think, well, you know, maybe he's saying that because he's nervous. But, you know, when you're reading fiction, you get that interior thing where you know that the person, you, you can see the gap between what the person feels in the story and how he behaves and how his behavior 
confuses the issue, you know, for the people who are experiencing, you know, you know what I mean? And, and so then you're, you're maybe more likely when you're with other people to think about that, to think, well, you know, why is he acting that way around this person or that person? Or did he really mean that? And then, you know, you're, you're, you're more able to be compassionate. And, and I think there's been some research on that too, that shows that readers of fiction are, are more compassionate, are more willing to, you know, kind of give people a second chance or to, to think about their reactions. And I think that's a good thing. I wish we had to read more fiction in school. I wish people re- read more good fiction. I think it would change them. Well, you won't hear an argument from me on that. I do. <laughs> I'm 100% pro-reading. <laughs> well, wow, uh, before we leave Wu behind, maybe we never will. Um, something else you, I think you, you mentioned here in the book, and I know I've heard you say it elsewhere, uh, is that when you're reading regularly, books find their way to you. It seems like that the, the universe knows yeah. you need to read this, yeah. and so there it is. Sometimes they do, and sometimes in a personal way, and sometimes, you know, as a writer, I'm thinking um, of, a, of a book that I absolutely loved, which was called um, Tiger, Moon Tiger by a British writer named Penelope Lively, and this, this book come out, came out years ago. I, th- I think I won the Booker Prize. Um, but anyway, I was working on a book of mine that's called Faithful Women, and it was set in England, and it had to do with um, something that was happening in the present time, which was a person who had come to repair a painting in the National Gallery, but it also hinged on a lot of things that that had happened um, in World War II, because this person was my age and you know had parents and whatever. Um, so I don't I don't even remember exactly how this worked, but I was I was struggling with the structure of this book. I couldn't figure out what the structure was, um, and so I picked up this book of Penelope Lively's and there was something about that book and I like I said I couldn't tell you exactly what it was but it just triggered you know it triggered something in my mind and all of a sudden it was like and I suddenly understood you know what something that I I needed to do um, in my own book so you know you you get that and sometimes it's like and I can't necessarily think of a particular example but you see somebody do something and and you think well I didn't know you could do that and so you think, well, then I can do that. And so it, it, it gives you, you know, it widens your uh, scope of what you think is possible for you to do in a book. The, the last book that I wrote this about grace is like that. Um, you know, it's just a bunch of fragments in a lot of ways. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, I, I wouldn't have thought that I could do that. But yet I did. So I just... Um, I don't know. I think it's really an interesting thing. I think you get a lot, you know, from as a as a writer. I also think reading and I mean, I read 105 books last year and they were almost all fiction. And so I think the thing that I get from that, too, is like this sort of osmosis thing where my brain is taking in all these different flows and structures and um, ways of doing things. And it's doing it totally on an unconscious, subconscious level. But nonetheless, there in my head is a whole bunch of stuff that can come into play as I'm trying to solve a problem. And I don't necessarily even connect it to whatever book I read. It's just that I've read so many books that um, I just have all that technical stuff in my head without even knowing that it's technical. That sounds really nutty. But no, I disagree. I think that if you uh, do anything long enough on a regular basis, yeah. it's going to, it's going to, you're, you're going to have that down. 
Of course. It has, it has worked that way for me. And I, and I love that. So that's how I justify reading all the time. That's one of uh, many arguments for why uh, everyone should read more, but writers in particular. Yeah, I was going about thinking, I'm the first person to ever write a book. Why is it so hard? No, you're not. There's lots of examples of how to do this successfully. Go see. Well, how could you think you could be a writer if you didn't like to read? That's just crazy to me. But a lot of people do. You say that, but you and I both know that there are students that come in every workshop. I say, you know, I say, what's your favorite book? And they're like, "Uh, I don't really like to read that much, but I want to write a novel. And I think, well, really. Once I'm a famous novelist, I'll find time to read other books. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's very, very strange. But I mean, book, books are like food to me. I, I, I just eat them up. I mean, I really have that feeling like, ah, and, and they, I can't stop. I, I'm so bad that when I, um, when my second daughter was born, I was right in the middle of a, um, a big fat James Michener novel that I took to the hospital with me. And after she was born, I kept reading and reading. And every time they would bring the baby out, I would say, oh, I had to put the book down. <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> that's, that's it. Oh, I love that about you. I, I think we talked about that last time. That, that That's such a Barbara Shoop story that, that, that you cannot that. put those books down. Me. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Ah, she made it to 18. It's fine. <laughs> she made 40, 40, more than I want to think. 47. <laughs> One of my uh, go-to metaphors, because it's something I haven't done, but I always chuckle about the idea of people going out to the rainforest and uh, or the jungle, and you get a medicine uh, shaman that makes the ayahuasca, and everybody takes it, and then your mind is opened up to this incredible spiritual experience. Just so I'm told. I don't know. Maybe you just go out there, and then you get bit by mosquitoes and wet. It sounds <laughs> Yeah, that's happened. what happened to me. <laughs> but I always think that, you know, you could have that experience at your library. Just get yourself a book. You know what? That's what I always think. What, what do you need drugs for? You do not need them. You could just be, have that same kind of fabulous escape in a book. It's, it's, and it's, you know, I, I just always feel like, you know, I'm on this mission, right? That if I could just find the right book for each person, it would, they would say, oh, I didn't know it was like this. <laughs> and then they would become readers. It happens sometimes. No, no, no. Uh, you know, you know, Indiana, I was uh, I, I was raised fairly strictly religious, although it by Indiana uh, terms, it, I got a pretty light. I, I knew plenty of uh, of kids <laughs> in my class that were, were in much worse shape, uh, but but pretty heavy religion, pretty. And I was uh, dyed in the wool, would would fight, uh, would fight anybody I saw for uh, pro-life uh, position right up until I was 18, 19, and started for the first time really thinking for myself beyond the, the preconceived notions that yeah. had come on me. And I read uh, The Cider House Rules by John mm-hmm. Irving, and mm-hmm. that book forever changed me. I could never see the facts the same way again after that. It, it fractured something in my brain, and that was the start of a brand new Rob that emerged yes. from that. Yep. Because if, if that initial thing, that foundational belief that I had taken that could not be shaken, could in fact be shooken, uh, or shook, shook. <laughs> I, I don't think shook is shooken. a thing. Uh, but if, if that could be challenged, if that could be changed, what other views could be changed? Yeah. And that uh, made me a, I was already a reader for life, but that, that book in particular was the, the right book that found me that really yep. broke my brain apart. That's cool. Well, I tell you what, I'm going to talk your face off about how much we love reading all day, but I promised that we were going to do an in-depth uh, discussion okay. of emotion in your heart. So let me uh, pull up a couple of things specific right. from the book that I wanted to follow up with you about. Um, 
we talked a little bit about, uh, or you talk about, uh, using the world around you, taking inspiration for characters from people you know, people you meet. You keep notebooks that I uh, jokingly refer to as um, like the the John Doe composition books in Seven, <laughs> uh, but you know for a good purpose because they <laughs> they're going to create a, a, a novel and a work of fiction uh, at some point. With all of that information that you're using. What is a way to do that ethically, to use the world around you for inspiration without ever crossing a line and, you know, portraying um, someone that, you know, I'd never want to write a, a character that's so on the nose that, that somebody reads and says, oh, my God, he's talking about me. Now, that happens anyway, because people project uh, onto things I've written, but I never want to have actually been guilty of it, even if somebody thinks I am. Yeah. Well, you know, I think you just have, I think at least I have a little thing in my head or heart or somewhere that's like a wrong note. If I, if, you know, if I'm writing something that I think, eh, I shouldn't do this, I feel it, you know? Um, and in that case, I will generally either not write it or, talk to the person I think it might affect and, you know, see if it, if it will, people get their feelings hurt sometimes. And, and as you say, sometimes they project, honestly, though, I know this is sort of awful in a way, but um, I think a lot of people don't read your stuff. You know, you assume that they do and they don't. Um, and, and it's always, you know, a little bit interesting to see uh, and I don't know whether, you know, if somebody is offended, they just don't say anything or whether they didn't even really bother to read it at all. And I, I don't know. I really don't know. But I, you know, I think there, you know, I there are things I wouldn't have written before my parents died, for example, that I wouldn't. Well, I might have written them, but I wouldn't have felt, felt pub, uh, comfortable to publish them because why would you want to hurt somebody, you know? Um, but. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that's for everybody. Everybody has to decide that. What I do think is that if you know that you're writing it for revenge, that's not a good idea. Um, if you're writing it as a way of trying to understand it yourself, which is you know what I'm always doing, I'm trying to, if I'm using something that's real like that, I'm always using it as a way of trying to crack through something I don't get, something I'm missing, something I don't understand. Um, but I don't think, number one, I don't think, you know, I don't think from a craft pur purpose that you can create necessarily a good character if you're writing from revenge because you're not seeing it clearly. You know, you always have to be able to see everything, the good, the bad, the whatever. Um, but I just think it's a mean thing to do. And I don't I just don't think it's a good idea to write from revenge. So I guess that's what I have to say about that, which isn't much, but it's a tricky question. Well, it's less effective. If you want revenge, just go take revenge then write the book. <laughs> Right. Uh, let's see, a couple of other things I definitely wanted to ask you about before our, our time evaporates on us. Um, I always want to ask about how you deal with ignorant writers, because I, I know you, being director of the, of the <laughs> IWC, you said that you had uh, 
you, you, you relay a conversation, but my friend said, I need to get this book on the market right away. I took a deep breath. We get this kind of call a lot. People convinced they've just written a best-selling novel. Yep. I feel for them. I get emails from people. Hey, can you recommend a literary agent? No, listen to the podcast. <laughs> Check out the blog that I've maintained for free. I'm giving this information away. Yep. Take a little initiative, pal. Um, so how, how do you deal with that? And how can those authors that are listening that are also dealing with that um, yeah, what's, what's the most effective way to disarm those people? I try to be kind. I mean, I don't, uh, it's hard because sometimes you just want to say, are you crazy? But I, I say that. <laughs> Very diplomatic. Uh, yeah. I try to, you know, I try to, um, to say to them in the kindest way that I can um, that, you know, that, that bestsellers don't happen very often, um, that there's a process that you have to go through, that if you want an agent, you know, here's what you have to do. I can't get one for you. Um, and, and that a lot of it doesn't have to do, I mean, a lot of it is just luck. You know, it, it's, you don't know, you can't predict and nobody can predict what's, what's going to be a bestseller. And so when, you know, when I get those calls or when people, you know, sometimes they'll come up to you at a conference or something and want to know, uh, you know, I I, I want to be honest with people. I think it's important to be honest with people. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that the Writer Center provides is reliable advice. And I think that's really important. There are a lot of scams out there. And I think people need to know about those, you know, these publishing companies that charge you an arm and a leg and promise stuff that they can't promise. You need to be aware of those kinds of stuff, things. But if you, you know, if you've got this manuscript or this idea or whatever, um, I feel like, my way of doing that is to be as kind as I possibly can, but to tell them the truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes they persist and they say, but but if you read it, I know you'll think and I'll just say, well, I, you know, I, just, I just can't. I really can't. I don't have time. I, uh, you know, you, you need to look for an editor or or somebody. That, and, and the other thing that's so funny is that people sort of just assume that you would do that for free. Even though, I mean, and I do editing sometimes and I enjoy it, um, but oh my God, you know, the number of hours it takes to go through a novel and really look at it, you know, it's 20, 25 hours um, or more. And and so I I used to do it for free um, and I don't anymore, um, mainly because I don't have the time. And I don't even take on very many clients because I don't have the time. But, you know, they don't even know what they're asking you. Um, sometimes when, when they, when they ask that, and then if you do it and you tell them something they don't want to hear, then they're mad. <laughs> so that's another reason not to do it. That's happened to me so many times. It's like no good deed goes unpunished. Um, so, you know, my thing now is I just try to be kind, but I want to be honest, make sure they know what they need to know and they can either hear it or not. For the record, I mean, you're one of my favorite people in the world. I see you locally as often uh, as, 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 as things allow. Um, this is your, the second time on the podcast. I didn't even format your ebook for free. <laughs> so, oh, you didn't. And I didn't expect it. You really gave stuff. me a good deal on it, though, <laughs> which I deeply appreciate. <laughs> Let me uh, skip ahead because I've, I've got so many points from this book where we're not going to cover. But that's okay. A commotion in your heart. Notes on writing and life is available now. Esteemed audience, get your copy. You're not going to be sorry. Um, but a couple other things that I definitely want to drill down a little bit uh, is a couple of uh, viewpoints you bring about specifically. You're, you're quoting some other writers uh, about um, uh, 
uh, prose uh, writing. Uh, she say, don't goose the language, meaning don't <laughs> use fancy language or excessive adverbs or, yeah. or adjectives to tell readers what you think and feel. Uh, make nouns and verbs. Do the work. Uh, and the hotter the topic, the cooler the prose, which I love. So talk I a little bit it. more about, unpack that a little bit for us. The hotter the, pro the, hotter the topic, that one? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Russell Banks said that. Uh, to me in an interview and we were talking about writing that had um, you know like sex or violence or intense kinds of things going on and he said that his you know his little motto for that was the hotter the topic the cooler the prose and what he meant by that was um, again let the nouns and verbs do the job as opposed to using you know adverbs that that um are you know heavy duty language purple prose we might call it you know where you you know you use breathlessness and um you know a lot of ab you know he's horrible he's evil he's whatever you know adjectives adverbs that are kind of like little crutches that direct the reader's thinking instead of making him feel it and so essentially what he's saying is you can you can create the feeling in the writer by way of images that's what you do you know you freak the reader out by putting that picture out there that is so horrifying rather than explaining it, you know? So I'll, I'll give an example. I, I love the writer Martin Cruz Smith um, and his Russian novels. And he had, he had one that was called um, Polar Star. And it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's about a murder that happens on a fishing um, factory ship way up in, you know, the coldest weather ever. And, and so anyway, they bring up this body um, when they when they put the nets out and there's a body in there and so they you know take the body and they're doing an autopsy and and Martin Cruz Smith explains in simple sentences simple words how the eels start coming out of every single body orifice and he never says oh it's so gross but you're reading it and you're thinking oh my God, this is horrifying. And that's what he means. You know, it's not fancy language. It's not overwrought. It's just simple language that, that um, you know, might, might there might be a, a rhythm in it that underpins it, you know, whatever it is. Um, but mostly it's nouns and verbs. And, and you're seeing it and you're seeing it in the most specific possible way. And I think, you know, Tim O'Brien meant the same thing when he said, don't goose the language, which I think is hilarious. You know, don't manipulate the reader by using fancy words, you know, adjectives and adverbs um, to, to direct their thinking. Um, make it happen on the page with nouns and verbs. And, you know, you can use, of course, occasionally you're going to use them, but, um, but they're not, a lot of elementary teachers will you know, they think that adjectives and adverbs are the creative words, but they're not. It's nouns and verbs. Sometimes you have to disabuse them of that you know, <laughs> when you visit, but kindly. <laughs> I just think any time I'm paying attention to your prose, I've stopped paying attention to your story. That's I'm right. out of, you've knocked me out of your world now. I'm thinking yep. about what a wonderful writer you are as opposed to yep. what a wonderful story I was enjoying yep. before you started. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay, Tolstoy said clarity is beauty and I think that's right that whatever it takes to make a story clear whatever kind of language whatever kind of rhythm that's what beauty is in writing and I think it's good to remember that 
Another uh, character from uh, Commotion in Your Heart I wanted to follow up. Not a character, a real life person, but this uh, kind of a character, this Gordon Lisk, a.k.a. Oh Captain Fiction. That is such an interesting story. It's not clear to me from the reading, because it's kind of ambiguous about how pro uh, Captain Fiction you were versus how maybe a little bit uncomfortable by Captain well, So Tell the un- uninitiated about Captain Fiction and, and Captain maybe Fiction, uh, unpack that uh, a little as well. It's a guy named Gordon Lish. It's Lish. And he, uh, you know, was a New Yorker. He worked with Knopf. He was, everybody thought he was the greatest thing in the 80s. Um, and he was, he was, I mean, he was a little crazy, really. So I thought, oh, I'm going to check this out. And he was all, he was famous for discovering people. Everybody wanted to be discovered by him. And so I went to this workshop um, and he showed up in full safari regalia, including a pith helmet, which he never took off all day. Um, and, and he was just awful. He, you know, he, he didn't, he got mad if people got up to go to the bathroom. There was a half hour for lunch at last like from eight until five or something and um his method of teaching was he would pick up a manuscript and he would read until he got bored which was usually maybe three sentences tops and then he would put it down and he would tell you why it was so awful and you know the room the the atmosphere in the room was just it was awful um but you know whatever the thing is I actually went twice. Don't ask me why, but I did. Um, and and what I realized was I didn't like him as a person. And I what I learned was one, um, he it might be great to be it might be great to be um, discovered by somebody who had that kind of power. But then you were his in a way, and he had a very specific way of thinking about writing. And if you didn't write like that, he 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 wouldn't he wouldn't back you, you know, so you would have to agree to be the kind of writer that he wanted you to be. And I understood that that wasn't worth it. I mean, that wasn't good. Um, But I also, I learned some things from him because he was so obsessive. I mean, I I learned um, something about sentences um, and, and how sentences work. And so it was worth it. I wouldn't say I was a fan of him, um, but I learned something from him. And I, you know, and so what I, what I say about that is, you, you know, you can get something from people, even though the experience may be really awful, but remember who you are. You know, if you go to something like that and, and, you, and you feel like you have to be what he wants you to be, you lose yourself and you don't want to do that. So when you're doing these kinds of workshops with different kinds of people, just remember who you are, you know, and, and learn from them what is helpful to you, not feeling like you have to take on the whole, whatever that whole philosophy of writing is. And that was kind of where I came out on that. I didn't like him. He wasn't a nice person. <laughs> I have uh, not a great deal of patience for, for folks that, that have some version of that idea that every successful author does yeah. these things. And that's why every book ever written is this type of book. And they're all bestsellers. Yeah. That's objectively not true, sir. <laughs> no, it's not. not and you have to watch out for that, you know, as a person who's an aspiring writer, you, you want to make sure you enter those learning experiences within the right frame of mind. You're lucky if you find somebody, you know, who really is on your wavelength and then you can really learn a lot. But, you know, because a person doesn't like your writing doesn't mean you're you're not a good writer. So, you know, Gordon Lish didn't like my writing. That just meant Gordon Lewis didn't like my writing. It didn't mean anything other than that. And that's sometimes hard, you know, if you're, especially if you're not real experienced, you, you could feel more discouraged than you should. It, you know, it's not, this is tough. This stuff is tough. It's, you have to, you know, you really have to learn to have a thick skin because if you don't, you, you just can't keep going. So 
It's not for sissies. <laughs> what is? Uh, <laughs> what in life is just like, ah, I'm apathetic and a sissy, and things are going great for me. I picked the right path. I, I don't know what path that would be. <laughs> yeah. So true. Uh, something I know frustrates my fiction uh, workshop kids because they're kids, they're adults. Um, but when they when they come in on on day one, I tell them that uh, the first thing you need to know is that fiction is art. Art is subjective, so all art is a matter of opinion. Period. The end. Read story by Robert McKee. It will change your life. Read a commotion in your heart. It yeah. will change your life. <laughs> but even after that, it's still going to be what? What have you got going? And I can't write your novel for you because I don't have your opinions. You're going to have to share. And I'm going to give you bad advice, not because I'm intentionally trying to sabotage you, but because yeah. I'm telling you how I would write your novel. I don't know how you are going to find the way to write your novel. And I think it would almost be worse. Uh, well, I, I, I don't have the experience to speak from, but I think it would almost be worse to have a best-selling uh, novel that you knew somebody else had imposed uh, things upon you that sure. it wasn't the book you wanted, but it, it, it did well. Um, well I think it would almost be better to have a, your perfect book and have it in obscurity. Yeah, right. Well, Ra Raymond Carver, the great short story writer, was uh, worked with Gordon Lish. And there's been a lot of controversy over the years about how much Gordon Lish edited those stories to the extent that some people feel like they're not really Raymond Carver's stories. They're they're sort of both of their stories. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a case of that. And he became super famous, um, but not with the stories he sort of originally wrote, and I'm not saying that good editing isn't wonderful, it is, but that kind of extensive editing is maybe a little bit different, so, yeah. Raymond Carver uh, gets, a, gets a shout out, right? There's a chapter of what we talk about when we talk about fiction. Yeah, yeah, he, I love his work, he's, he's, he's wonderful, but yeah, that's, a, that's just a great story and a great title, so I stole it. Not, not the story, just the title. That's a good title. <laughs> Uh, let's see, what else in the specific things that I don't want to squander this opportunity and make sure I ask you about uh, from the book? Uh, we'll skip some of these things we've talked about. Um, but I did want to add, oh, uh, one fun thing I wanted to ask you about. You talk about meeting your husband, who's referred to only yeah. as S, uh, S in the story. <laughs> but you also talk about when you met him, one of his friends was way cuter. He uh, has he read this book? And how does he feel about that observation? <laughs> He's amused. He's been amused by me since the day we met. So, you know, it wasn't really a problem. Of course, I didn't tell him that then. <laughs> I told him that later. So, yeah. <laughs> after after he was uh, fully assured that yeah. <laughs> you came around and found him cutest yeah. after all. <laughs> yeah. Which, you know, is further proof for high school girls that it's not the cute ones necessarily that make the best boyfriends. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, something I wanted to ask you about uh, from both the book and from your life, you had a friend that was involved in like, a 1974 kidnapping of an heiress. I did. Uh, the way you described it, it's almost like a neighbor talking about a serial killer. They were, they were quiet and unassuming. Uh, what happened? Um, how did that change your perspective on character and what did that experience teach you? Well, I wasn't writing then, um, but it, cha it drastically changed my perception of pretty much everything, um, specifically in terms of writing that came into play as I, you know, learned about character, writing characters or creating characters was, you know, here was a person that I knew, 
And I knew her as a good person, which she was a good person, yet she had done this thing that was clearly wrong. Um, how do you think about that? As a young person, you're not generally called upon to think about that's usually an abstract question, but in this case, it was a concrete, real question. And so for me, it was, so she did this terrible thing. Does that mean I shouldn't be her friend anymore? And I thought, well, isn't friendship really about being a friend no matter what? She hasn't changed to me. But, you know, just to make a long, a, long, a very long story short, what it taught me was about the complexity of people. And that I, you know, then I started to think, well, every other person in prison who I think of as just a terrible person also has people like me outside who who know that person as a good person. And so what exactly does that mean? You know, people do bad people do good things, good thing people do bad things. And and that's really interesting. So, you know, when you indulge yourself in thinking of people as one way or another, you you so don't see the whole spectrum of humanity. You just don't. I mean, even with the good person, it amuses me sometimes because people that, you know, you think of as good, aren't they like sometimes annoying because they are good in ways that make them feel good. You know, like they're giving you something, but is it the thing that you want or need or is it the thing that they want you to, to give you or want you to need? And so, you know, I just started looking at people in a in a really different way after that and and it really was what finally made me start writing because I thought um I was at you know I was 25 I had a couple of kids at that time and married and I you know I loved my husband I loved my life but I all also knew that I wanted more and and so I thought I don't really want to kidnap somebody that seems drastic but I do want something that I believe in you know and writing was that for me. And so it sort of set me on my path and it, it changed me in that way. It was a, a profound experience. If for no other reason than the fact that I, a you know, 25-year-old person living in Indiana, suddenly found myself in 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 the realm of an international story. Um, and that was weird, you know, and I had my own little personal relationship with the FBI and all that um, because of a, a variety of things. But but anyway, um, that was really interesting. Well, that's a separate second podcast. We're going to we're gonna have to yeah. <laughs> drill down on that sometime. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing. You know, you think, oh, the FBI, they're you know, they're here to help us. They're not. <laughs> that wasn't my experience. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> Whole other thing. Maybe maybe off the air I'll I'll ask you some follow-up yeah, questions about that. We'll talk about it on the air any farther than that. But <laughs> no, anybody that uh, reads the history of the civil rights mo movement, you you can't come away with that and tell me conspiracies don't exist. Oh, sure, they do. There they are. Yeah, <laughs> they're there. Yeah, they are, or were, or are. <laughs> Let's see. Um, Lots of uh, different questions for you, and I know I'm I'm burning up your time and, and talking that's your okay. face off. And I'll try to answer quickly, <laughs> more quickly. Um, one one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about because you you're brave enough to include one of your rejections uh, in the novel <laughs> that just drove me nuts on your behalf reading Thank it, you. and I want to share it with people okay. so that they can also feel it, and then you could talk about this experience because I've I've received maddening rejections. Anybody that's in the game long enough has probably received. Yeah. I don't know about this though. I love this one is what this editor says of your novel. <laughs> Let me say that again. I love this one! Exclamation point. 
It was one of those special novels that I hope against hope I would be able to buy. However, I did not get the same reaction in readings from the powers that be, and so I am forced to send this lovely gem back to you. Oh, my God. I know. How does that not ruin your week? You know, you don't know what to think about it, because that was during that long period of time where I went, you know, between the two books. And um, sometimes I would think I would just like to get a rejection that said, this is the worst writer I've ever read. She really should be an accountant. And then it would be clear you know, to me that I should just stop. Um, But I got, you know, I got a lot of a lot of those. Not quite like that. But, um, yeah, it's really difficult. And then I had another weird experience where um, that same book eventually morphed into a young adult book and it was Hyperion. And so I, I, you know, redid it, sent it to them. My editor loved it, went to New York, had that conversation. And then for uh, about four months later, everybody got fired and they totally redid the whole division. And the new person didn't, didn't think it was finished. And so then, you know, what do you do? Because you think, all right, this New York person was ready to publish it. She thinks it's terrific, terrific. And now this other New York publisher, equally, you know, powerful in that world, doesn't think that. Um, so that was a great lesson to me, you know, in the subjectivity of it. Um, as it turned out, the, the second person was actually right. And when I redid it, it was better. Um, I solved a problem that I sort of knew was there, but thought was unsolvable. But in fact, it was. So when I was pushed to do it, it it actually worked. But um, but, you know, it was a good lesson to me because you you can't you know, you can't know you, you're never going to get anything definitive from anyone. So just deal with it. <laughs> you know, it's not like a it's not like a multiple choice test where you either get them right or you don't or true false or whatever. It's just a big fat mess. Yeah, you know, even if you write a book that uh, goes on to become wonderfully acclaimed, the whole world says, this is Harry Potter, the second yeah. coming, we love it. There's still going to be a part of you. I, I'm sure J.K. Rowling has um, bits that she's insecure about within her yeah. magnum opus. And if she doesn't, get in touch, Miss Rowling. I'll point out a couple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> you still have to, to deal with that pain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about symbols, because you've got a whole section on on when it's appropriate to use symbols. This is something I'm forever pulling back from because I, I want to I want to say all the brilliant things and show people how smart I am. And then the moment <laughs> I'm doing that, they're no longer paying attention to the story yeah. and I'm outsmarting myself. Got to take it back. So what what advice do you have for writers on using symbols? My advice is don't think about it. Just write the story. Because the best symbols happen in process. And you might or might not know they're there. Um, when I was interviewing writers, it was always really funny because sometimes we would, you know, we would bring up the, uh, this seems to be a symbol of, and nine times out of 10, the writer would go, really? Because <laughs> they didn't know. Um, and then sometimes, you know, you will recognize them or, you know, you might add something that you you think you need, <clears throat> but you can improve them, you know, as as you revise. But the majority of um, people that I talked to did not did not have a plan. You know, they did not plan symbols ahead of time and drop them in. It was something that happened in process. Uh, so another question I wanted to ask you about you. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read some more of your your bone book to you, if, if, if you'll indulge <laughs> <Okay>. me. Uh, <laughs> you say that is as a writer, you must mind the gap between the story you have in your head and heart and the one you've managed to transfer to the page in words, which I love. And I'm, I'm hoping you'll just uh, wax philosophical about that for a moment. Well, it is um, 
to me, it feels physical, this gap between what, you know, what's in your head and what's on the page and the process by which you take this stuff and in a very literal way have to translate it to words. You know, that feeling when you go, you're looking for a word and you go to the thesaurus and you're like, where's that word? Where's that word? And you can't find it. And the reason is there is no word. And that's hard to accept, you know, because you think you're going to be able to find it. And to me, that's the greatest example sort of of what I mean by that, that you, um, the word does not exist. And so, and I always say to, you know, to students, words are a second language to your heart, that you have to take that idea or that feeling or, you know, even stuff that you know, none of that stuff is in words. And so you have to, in a very literal way, just like you're translating a poem from one language to another, you have to do your best to translate, you know, to match up um, whatever's in your head to what's available to you, which is the language, you know, your understanding of the language and the culture that you're writing in and all that kind of stuff. And so you have to be you know, you have to be, you have to know about craft. So you know what kinds of tricks you can use and you have to know about the culture. So you know when you're getting it right and when you're getting it wrong. And and so it's this long process. That's why it takes so long. Um, you're you're translating just, just like a translator does. And when I say mind the gap, um, I, I saw that sign in a in, in a tube station the first time I ever went to London and I just thought it was hilarious. I don't know. I just think it's funny. Mind the gap. So British. And, it, you know, it was about minding the, the, the gap between the platform and the train. Um, and later I, I, I began to see it as pay attention to the gap between the thing in your head and your heart and the thing on the page, because there is one, you know, some, if you don't know, there's a gap, you might fall right through the track onto the tracks at the train station, or, you know, in writing, you're going to fall through the gap and nobody's going to be able to know what you're talking about. So um, that's mind the gap to me. I want to make sure I ask you about uh, the revision toolkit, but it occurs to me that there's one other thing I have to ask you about because okay. uh, when will I have an, another opportunity to ask uh, about this? You uh, were in charge of uh, managing another uh, writer's estate. You're the executor of the estate. Yeah, right. What yeah. is that process like? What 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 is that? Um, what, it what's was. That role? It was complicated in some ways. Um, it was a friend of mine, an older person who was my mentor. Her name was Vesla Fenstermaker. She was an India, Indianapolis writer, wonderful writer and poet. And she asked me if I would do that. And I, I said, yes, that I would. And she was not a writer. You know, she was not a super prolific writer and not a famous writer or anything like that. It would be very complicated if she had been. But mainly it was my job to collect her work, you know, to make sure that I had all of the things that she had done and that, you know, included in some cases correspondence and journals and whatever, and, you know, sort of decide what to do with them. And in some cases, it just, you know, in her case, some of it just went to her family. Um, and and what I ended up doing was um, putting, she had been kind of shopping a poetry manuscript the last years of her life. And and so I ended up putting that manuscript together. And by way of the Writers' Center, <laughs> we published that um, poetry manuscript. And we, you know, we had a really lovely memorial for her. And a lot of local poets each, you know, read one poem at, at the event. So for me, it was, you know, it was, it was just, it's basically organizational stuff and deciding where things should go. Um, so that was, you know, I felt honored that she had asked me, that she trusted me to do that. 
Obviously, I'm determined I'm going to live forever. Uh, but for authors who are listening who might one day uh, perish, uh, what should authors be doing to set themselves up so that when they're gone, their work's protected, their family is going to be protected? How, how should a writer set up a I, mean, I think you should, you, should, um, you should identify a person or people who you trust to do that, you know, and, and talk with them and, and talk about what, you would like to have done with with your stuff. Um, some of my uh, I was invited to send some of my young adult uh, manuscripts to I cannot even think of what the archive is now, but it's a, it's a university of southern of uh, one of the University of Florida's. I can't remember which one, but they have um, kind of an archive of of young adult um, manuscripts in honor of a guy who was you know very instrumental in in you know helping books get out there. He was an educator. So, you know, I was really honored to be asked to do that. And and I still have, I'm sort of trying to decide what I want to do with my nifty notebooks, because I, I think those, I would like for people to be able to see those because they have some interesting things about process. So I haven't actually thought about, I mean, I have thought about it, but I haven't decided that. And I think, I think it is something that I should do. Sometimes you can get money, you know, for, uh, for those things. Um, libraries will, will pay or, universities. I don't, I don't think I'm that kind of a writer. So um, I'll hope that I can find a home for them, you know, in, in one of the universities that I attended or, you know, maybe public library. That would be nice too. Let's a uh, more upbeat topic. Two more questions and we'll, we'll call it a day. Is that reasonable? Yeah, sure. I appreciate your enormous patience. I know I'm, I'm second up your whole have morning. Have a good time. <laughs> Uh, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the revision toolkit, uh, which you've put together for yourself. And I'm wondering what all should a writer have in their revision toolkit? What would you recommend that they stock that with? Well, you learn, the more you do it, the more you learn. And, you know, you talk to other writers and they say, I do this or I do that. And one of the things that I like about um, the book Novel Ideas that I talk about, talked about earlier is that we asked all those writers, how do you revise? Do you have tricks of revision or particular methods that you use? How do you approach it? And essentially, everybody has to figure that out for themselves. It, just like you have to figure out what kind of writer you are, you have to think about what how you want to revise or what seems possible for you. Um, so in A Commotion in Your Heart, I sort of list a series of things that that you can try. The first one, <coughs> and probably you know most commonly used, is just to, to read through it, you know, to to print it out and start reading and see where you go. Ah, that sounds terrible, um, and and that's that can be useful, but you pretty soon start skimming is the problem with that. And so you know you can be more effective early in, in that process, early in the book. And I think you generally need to do more than that. Um, reading your work aloud, or better yet, having somebody read it to you is really helpful. Because when you read it aloud, you really hear the wrong notes, you know, or, or you feel, you know, like sometimes you can always tell a run on sentence because you can't breathe anymore while you're still trying to read it. it just, you know, it just goes on and on. And you're like, ah. <laughs> so you'll figure that out. But when other people read it to you, they'll you'll hear where you didn't get you didn't get the rhythms you were going for because they read it in a different rhythm than you intended. So that can be really helpful. Um Sometimes I use um, sometimes I use calendars if I get confused about time. You know, I'll put all the things on a calendar and then, 
you know, see where the gaps are. And I, you know, I, I do revision along the way too. I don't necessarily only do it at the end of a draft. So I, I use stuff like that and, and just timelines generally just to, to be able to visually get a fix on how things move and where things are. And then I have this crazy thing that I do, which I now use spreadsheets for. I didn't used to do spreadsheets, but now I do. So um, it helps me see where things are. So I'll, I'll say uh, chapter one, and then I'll write the first line of the chapter. And then, you know, in the next lines, I'll, <clears throat> excuse me, summarize what's going on. And so then I'll have the characters along the top and wherever that character appears, you know, I'll put an X or if they're mentioned, I'll put an M. So when I get, you know, when I get all the way through the whole thing, I can see where the characters are and I can see where they're not, which is very important sometimes. And, um, and in the process, which is extremely anal retentive, all my other head starts going and I, and I start thinking of other things, but I don't stop. I just start jotting them down. So by the time I get finished doing that, um, I end up with a whole bunch of questions and observations that then I, then I can pretty much make into a very specific revision list. So it's not like revise the character of Bob. It's like Bob's, uh, it'll be something specific about Bob. What what Bob does doesn't match what he said his childhood, or, you know, something like that. So there'll be very specific things to look at. And then I just go through them through the manuscript. And that's been the best, you know, best thing for me. It takes hours and hours and hours and days. Um, I happen to really weirdly like it. <laughs> I think the, I think it's a wonderful thing if you can, if you can get to the point where you enjoy revision, because I think your books will, you know, just be better for it. Um, and, you know, I think at one point in this book, too, I talked about the idea that one of the advantages of not being a rich and famous writer with everybody waiting for your work is that nobody's waiting for your work. <laughs> you know, it's the good news and the bad news, because that means that you have time to make it the best that it can be. Whereas a, a, a lot of writers who are successful are constantly pressured to, you know, get their book out on, on some kind of a schedule based on what the publisher wants. And that's, I haven't had to do that. So I have all these beautiful unpublished books. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> Martin, my uh, last question for you is uh, maybe a little bit of a lazy one, but I think it's a good one. Um, for uh, those readers who are about to pick up their copy of A Commotion in Your Heart, Yes. Notes on writing and life available wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, fine ebooks and paperbacks if you must, but that ebook, I'm telling you, it's a thing of beauty. Um, <laughs> if there was one thing, and obviously there's so much advice in here, as we've just really kind of scratched the surface over our conversation here of, of things in this book, there's a lot here for, for writers um, to invest their time and, and to take away. But if they're not going to do that, if they were only going to take one thing away from this book that would maybe okay. make a significant difference in their writing life, what is the one thing you would most want them to take away? Uh, the most, the thing I would want you to take away is if you really need to do it, you better do it and don't stop. Remember that it's supposed to be hard and um, don't set your heart on anything. <clears throat> you know, you have to separate the, the business end of it from the process end of it. So that's not just any one thing. But I, I think generally I would say we're all in it together. You know, it's hard, but we're all in it together. And I think that that book says that. I, I hope it says that. 
That's a beautiful sentiment. We are all in it together, aren't we? I hope we are. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I think I think the best of us are. You know, um, I like that. Well, Barb, where can esteemed audience find you online and make sure they get in it together with you? <laughs> where they can they follow can you? find me at www.barbershoop.com. They can find me by way of the Indiana Writers Center, www.indianawriters.org. Um, and that's about it. <laughs> or they could come to my house, but I'm not going to give my address. <laughs> uh, and as always, esteemed audience, you can find me. You know who I am. I'm at middlegradeninja.com. Head there. See this and many other fine uh, interviews. Read interviews. Check out my books. Make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. Get your free copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1. Go nuts. Uh, Barb, I am uh, asking all of our guests to sign us off with a very specific uh, sign-off phrase. Uh, and that phrase is, uh -oh. hiya, and what have you. It's very ninja-like. Hiya, oh, and what have you. Okay. Will you sign us off? Hiya!